Hey guys, I'm Amadal Yakbar, and this is See Something, Say Something, the BuzzFeed podcast where we drink tea, tell stories, and talk about being Muslim in America. Today we have a guest you've probably seen being brought on to talk about Islam on cable news. Joining us now is religious scholar and best-selling author Reza Aslan. Reza Aslan was a Christian but converted back to the faith of his forefathers. It's Islam. Please welcome back to the program Reza Aslan. Riz Aslan is here to talk about his personal story, why he really isn't interested in being a talking head anymore, and why he thinks pop culture is the thing that will actually change American minds about Muslims. If you see something, you better, you better say something. Nothing at all, nothing at all. Hey Reza, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be on the show. Should I call you Dr. Aslan, Uncle Reza, Brother Reza? What's the appropriate protocol here? Well, I guess I prefer Your Highness. Your Highness, uh, okay. Your Highness, Reza. That's a little long. <laughs> <laughs> Just Reza is fine. Although I will say that there's there's still something thrilling after all these years when somebody refers to me as Dr. Aslan. I'm like, ooh. It makes me feel like smart and sexy at the same time. Yeah, as somebody who uh, just did my master's and didn't finish up my doctorate, I'm kind of jealous. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, res it is then. So we also ask all our guests, how do you take your tea? Are you a tea drinker? I am. And I, you know, like most Persians, we do it the British way, right? With sugar and milk. Same. It's all that. It, you know, we were never colonized by the Brits, but that imperial stamp is still very much a part of who we are. So our first segment is See Something, Say Something. This is basically a segment where I just find out what's on your mind this week. What are you really thinking about right now? Man, I I wish I had a good answer to this (laughs) that I could be talking about, you know, the fact that my my youngest is about to turn two or oh, that, you know, I got to spend the Thanksgiving holidays with my family. But no, I can't think about anything else except the man who is about to become the most powerful human being on earth. It's a lot. What are you thinking about him? What are your, what are your thoughts? Well, we're about to be led by a serial liar with sociopathic tendencies. Mm. Um who has essentially stacked his cabinet with the most unqualified, xenophobic dregs of humanity you could possibly imagine, and who, like all authoritarians, has openly signaled that he is going to fleece the American public for his own enrichment. Like, he's not even pretending otherwise. yeah. And we all have to pretend that this is kind of normal and we're all acting as though this is some kind of, you know, great transfer of power. And it's kind of like a a model for other democracies to follow. And I just can't bear it. I mean, it's it's hard for me to really think about anything else, honestly. So, you know, when you're talking about the pathological lying part, uh, I've been thinking about this tweet he had a few days ago where he said, in addition to winning the Electoral College in a landslide, I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. Of course, there is no evidence at all that millions of people voted illegally. And, you know, it just made me think about how 
when he's sitting president, he'll handle international affairs and how his Twitter will play a role in that. It's truly astonishing. Sometimes you have to laugh when he is retweeting 16-year-olds who are (laughs) criticizing journalists who have the gall to say that it's incorrect to claim that millions of illegals voted in this election. And then you realize, oh, this isn't funny. This is about to become the most powerful man on earth. You know, I grew up in a country that changed overnight. It was one country when I was seven, and before I was eight, it was a completely different country. I'm talking about Iran. Hmm. We are looking right now at what's happened in Turkey. Six months ago, six months ago, Turkey was a thriving democracy with some problems like all countries have, but with a free and vibrant independent press, a burgeoning academic community, and one state of emergency later, and there is no such thing as democracy in Turkey anymore. So all these Americans sitting around telling you over and over again not to worry about what's happening. Don't worry about President Trump. I mean, what can he do? And, you know, our democracy has been around for 250 years. It's here for good. Just have no idea what they're talking about. Democracies are fragile things. Can you tell me a little bit about that childhood experience in Iran you were talking about? You know, the revolution, I'm assuming. Yeah. You know, I was born in 1972 and and the Iranian revolution of 1979 essentially transformed that country, for better or worse, depending on your viewpoint. But the fact of the matter is, is that I think it's an indication and reminder to everybody that uh, there is no such thing as continuity and sort of eternal stability when it comes to nation states. Nation states can rise or fall at, you know, the slightest thing. Uh, We have a president who has routinely denied constitutional rights of entire groups in this country, that has openly boasted about bringing back torture, about murdering the families of people that he defines as terrorists. He has said that he wants to put American citizens in Guantanamo Bay. Why aren't we taking this seriously? I don't understand (laughs) why people are just kind of like laughing this off. Yeah. I mean, one terror attack under this man's presidency, and that could be all she wrote. Yeah, I'm sorry. I really brought I brought the mood down, didn't I? I was trying to give you an opportunity to not go to the dark place. I actually, um, you know, I spent the weekend Thanksgiving with my family and I do what I always do when I need to get my mind off things, which is I played a lot of video games with my family. <laughs> do you, are you, are, have you ever played any video games? You know, I've never had the, uh, the patience for video games. I didn't play this game, but I'm going to give you some background. There's this game Call of Duty. Have you heard of that one, at least? Oh, yeah. So Call of Duty is a game I've always refused to play. I don't like playing games with guns in it. You spend a lot of time in these places that are sort of like facsimiles of Muslim 
countries, um, <laughs> stopping a dis- like dystopian ruler and fascist from and terrorists. You know, you spend a lot of time killing a shooting, lot of shooting people who look suspiciously like your own family. Exactly. And I, you know, a lot of my cousins who I, you know, I'm very bonded to from my youth by playing games with them, like to play these games. And I sort of took a stance against it. But this weekend, I played a game with like some guns in it, which is similar. It's called Overwatch, and it's actually a very good instance of storytelling in the sense that it's like you are in a dystopia in a way. The world has faced crisis, but the difference between it and like almost every other dystopia I've interacted with is this dystopia has optimism. The people who sort of pulled the world out of crisis are sort of realizing the world is coming into crisis for a second time. And you basically are, like, on this team of, like, extremely optimistic scientists and people from around the world. There's, like, an Egyptian woman. There's people from Japan. It's, like, this really diverse and uh, interesting people with backgrounds of all sorts of types. And it made me think about just, like, ways of dealing with social issues <laughs> in a way that isn't so negative. Like, uh, like you said, we have to take things seriously. There's a lot of, like, negativity in the world. But it just made me think about optimism too and ways to write characters and tell stories that deal with serious problems obviously it's like a fantasy version of it but it can stand as a metaphor for a lot of different things and i just found that to be very powerful surprisingly oh yeah dude i mean that's uh you know i never get tired of preaching about the power that pop culture has yes uh, which we're to talk transform about. people's perceptions i mean that's really that's how people form their ideas. You know, it's the power of storytelling, yeah. right? Since we've had the brain capacity to conceive of stories, stories have been how we have made sense of the world. I mean, religion is just storytelling. Politics is just storytelling. And so if you really do want to reach people, if you do want to change people's minds, you don't necessarily do that through information. You do that through powerful stories. Right. So you're most known for your appearances on cable news. Like yeah. a lot of people have come to know your name when you butted heads with Fox News and CNN and different hosts on these network newses. We'll get to that later. Um, you're talking about the power of storytelling. And you're actually um, the executive producer and a star of a mini episode of this thing called The Secret Life of Muslims. Where That's right. basically it's like little snapshots, mini documentary interviews with different Muslims who have experienced different things. And it really like kind of resonated with me because this show is a lot about telling stories more than changing minds. And in your own interview, you talk about the power of stories like we've just talked about. So we wanted to actually talk to you about your story. You grew up in California as well in the 70s and 80s. And you also just kind of mentioned there the Iranian Revolution. How did your parents talk to you about religion? What was the discussions around religion in your house? When we lived in Iran, we were like, I think, most Iranians, I would say, in fact, like most people in the world. We were kind of culturally religious. I think people need to understand that religion, regardless of what religion you're talking about or where in the world you're talking about, is far more a matter of identity than it is a matter of beliefs and practices. I mean, beliefs and practices are obviously important, but when someone says they are a Muslim or a Jew or a Buddhist or an atheist, they're making a statement about who they are, how they see themselves in the world. It's not just about the things that they believe. And so, you know, growing up in Iran, we were, like most Iranians, 
culturally religious. My mother was certainly more religious than my father was, but nevertheless, for us, religion was just kind of integrated into our lives. I grew up in a in a way where I had to figure out what Muslim meant for me in America, which I'm sure you'll talk about as well. What do you mean by culturally mm-hmm. religious? Can you sort of, sorry, define that for me? Well, in the sense that it was integrated into our day-to-day lives, you know, the way that we comported ourselves, the values that we held, um, the way that we even thought about our very nationality and our place in the world was tinged with Islam. We would go to mosque on holidays and special occasions. We weren't particularly devout, especially my father, who even when we lived in Iran, was quite a boisterous atheist, <laughs> a very exuberant, exuberant atheist. Um, the kind of atheist who always had a pocket full of Prophet Muhammad jokes that he would pull out <laughs> in inappropriate times, that, that kind of atheist. And like a lot of Muslims in the United States, to be honest, we had um, the experience of coming to America at a time of profound anti-Iranian and anti-Muslim sentiment. This was during the hostage crisis, the 444 days in which Americans were being held hostage in the U.S. embassy in Tehran. And so our initial instinct was to essentially conceal our religious identity and, frankly, our national identity to sort of go under the radar try to put our heads down, survive as new immigrants in an unfamiliar country. And a huge part of that was to scrub our lives clean of Islam as much as possible. You would still find, you know, a stray Quran or two in our house. And my mom would certainly pray in the privacy of her own room. But that was pretty much it for religion for us. Was your family separate from other Iranians? Like, were there other Iranians around you, or were you the only Iranian family um, when you were growing up? Well, when we first came to the U.S., we immediately moved to Oklahoma for some strange reason. <laughs> uh, and no, there Isn't were no that Iranians the immigrant in story? Oklahoma. In my case, it was... Uh, Missouri and Michigan for my parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, we realized that America is actually much bigger than Oklahoma, and so we ended up in the Bay Area of California. And there, there was a much larger Iranian community, but the Iranian community in the Bay Area was mostly middle class, a lot of intellectuals, you know, people who who fled Iran after the revolution, as opposed to, for instance, the Iranian community in Los Angeles, which tends to be people who fled before the revolution. So there was an Iranian community, but really, more or less, I think everyone kind of was in the same place. They Mm. were already not inclined to be very religious anyway. The backlash against the revolution and the Islamic Republic was so great that even those Iranians who were religious kind of kept it to themselves, even around other Iranians. And so I never grew up with much religious sort of experiences, although I'd always been very interested in religion myself. I think my childhood experiences of revolutionary Iran had kind of seared into my consciousness the power of religion. Oh, I can imagine. No, that's it. That it just just never left me. So then how did you get to a place where you became a scholar of religion? What what were some formative experiences that led you there? As I say, I, I grew up very interested in religion and very desirous of spirituality and spiritual experience, but without any opportunity to actually pursue those things. When I was in high school, a bunch of friends of mine uh, invited me to go to an evangelical youth camp. Hmm. And 
I heard the gospel story for the first time, and it was a real transformative moment for me. And I became an evangelical Christian, um, and that gave me an opportunity to sort of have an outlet for my spiritual yearning. The problem was is that this particular community was, as I say, very conservative, very literalist. So I would go to church and I would hear, um, you know, these messages from the preachers about um, how the Bible wants this from you and the Bible wants that from you. And unlike everybody else, I would actually check. So I would <laughs> I budding go home religious and, scholar. and read the Bible. Yeah, exactly. And be like, wait, 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 wait. That's not that's not what it says at all. Uh, or, you know, it could be interpreted in in many different ways. And when I would kind of bring these issues up, the response that I would get from my particular church community wasn't all that encouraging. What did your atheist father think of this? Oh, he was he was not happy at all. He was uh You didn't yeah, hide it from him. You just crazy. You, you came home and you were like I'm an evangelical Christian now? Oh, no. I mean, I I the first thing that y- your first task uh as oh. an evangelical Christian is to convert the world. <laughs> so so I I came home and and tried to convert my family. Oh my um, gosh! And I it worked. <laughs> I converted my mother. My mother to this day oh, is wow. a devout Christian. Yeah, that's so um, interesting. My I dad thought that. I was insane. And then you know again like in college I wanted to be a writer. I went to college in order to become a writer. But I took a couple of religion classes here and there, and it was a as you can imagine a completely different experience. It was an environment in which the questions that I had the multiple levels of meaning and different interpretations of the scripture and the historical study of religion was encouraged. You know, those conversations, those issues were encouraged at college. And I just thought, this is so fun. Like, this is what I want to do. I mean, I'll still become a writer, but I'm going to study religion so that at least I have a job as I become a writer. Never in a million years that I think that those two worlds, my writing life and my scholarly life, would actually intersect, but I got lucky. And did you come back to Islam? I don't know if I heard you mention that story. By the time I'd started college, I'd already kind of started drifting away from Christianity, certainly the Christianity that I was introduced to um, in high school, but I was still very deeply desirous of of a spiritual connection. I went to a Jesuit university, Santa Clara University in the Bay Area, Um, And it was the Jesuits who really encouraged me to delve back into the faith of my forefathers. You know, I didn't really know anything about Islam at that point. Anything that I did know, I'd long since forgotten. And so, you know, I picked up a couple of different books and I just started reading about Islamic history and Islamic ideas and about the Prophet Muhammad. And... I just felt like it provided a language for my spirituality that made more sense to me Mm. than Christianity and sort of the myths and metaphors and symbols of Christianity had ever done. And so I always sort of jokingly say that I had an emotional conversion to Christianity and an intellectual conversion to Islam. It's funny because I feel like for me, my Muslim identity was also forged under the fire of, you know, 9-11 and uh, mm-hmm. being a young person during that time. And, you know, there is a lot of parallels between this tension between like, do I want to hide my identity and like protect myself? But I also want to explore my identity. 
And, you know, I also did quite a bit of religious study in college, and I also feel like, you know, you, you study all the religions and you sort of figure out that there is some, like, useful things in many of them. And for me also, you know, Islam sort of became the one that was like, I still came back to it as the one that made the most sense for me. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you about how, you know, you come on to these shows as a religious scholar, um, but then as soon as you come on... There are these totally ludicrous premises that the questions are based on. The justice system in Muslim countries, you don't think, is somehow more primitive or subjugates women more than in other countries. Does Islam promote violence? Is it true in the Muslim faith that if you were the child of a Muslim father that you were considered by other Muslims to be a Muslim? Is that true? You're a Muslim, so why did you write a book about the founder of Christianity? Well, to be clear, I am a scholar of religions with four degrees, including one in the New Testament and fluency in Biblical Greek, who has been studying the origins of Christianity for two decades, who also just happens to be a Muslim. And it really feels like you're at a disadvantage and maybe you haven't been able to say the things that you wanted to say. So if you had the chance again to have that big audience, what do you wish people one thing that you wish people would hear from you? What is one thing you want them to know about Islam or Muslims? Well, first of all, let me just say that I don't particularly enjoy (laughs) that role (laughs) that I've kind of been thrust into. I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of of other people enjoy me in that role. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I'm glad to be, uh, you know, a source of such mirth and amusement (laughs) to a a lot of people. But I just don't, I don't find it to be all that useful. I mean, usually when I have some kind of clash on some cable news show, what happens is that the people who agree with me think I'm great and the people who disagree with me think I'm awful and nobody really changes their minds mm. either way. And it it starts to feel useless after a while, to be perfectly frank. Now... I still think it's valuable. I mean, I do think that it's important to go on to these uh, news programs and counteract the obvious misinformation that is slung around so often by people who present themselves as experts. But I don't enjoy doing it. (laughs) At the same time, I think what I want to do more than anything else is to clear up what is, in my opinion, the biggest misconception about Islam, and and that is that it's somehow different, right? That it is utterly unique, that it's not like other religions, that it hasn't been privy to the same cultural and historical influences, that it doesn't come in a variety of forms and and multiple interpretations and different ideas and schools and sects that it isn't like other religions. I mean, no person in their right mind would think that all two billion Christians think the same way or have the same beliefs or approach the scriptures in the same way or have the same values. Nobody, nobody would think that. And yet people would regularly say, that that is to be the case with the, you know, 1.7 billion Muslims in the world, that somehow Muslims, unlike every other religious community in the world, aren't affected by the various strands of interpretations or the lived religious experience, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think if there were an overarching theme 
to the kind of message that I try to promote as much as possible, at least on the news media, is that there isn't anything all that strange or unusual or exceptional or even that special about (laughs) Islam. Actually, that's probably a controversial position for both Muslims and non-Muslims because there's also, of course... Of course, yeah. I mean, that's the problem. Religious people tend to think that the way that they understand their religion is the right way. And everybody else's understanding of their religion is the wrong way. You hear this all the time. If I say to people, well, not every Christian, you know, believes these particular views about, say, homosexuality or abortion, most Christians who hear that would say, well, that's true. That's because they're wrong and I'm right, Hmm. (laughs) you know, and Muslims would say the same thing. But I mean, again, it's just this kind of general misunderstanding about Islam as a global religion. I mean, I was just on, you know, CNN just a little while ago and this Trump supporter was like, well, Islam is different because the Quran is mostly about laws. Look, 90% of the Quran is in fact a legal doctrine. It is Sharia. He's not saying that as an insult to the religion, but that is in fact it's structured differently than typical type, you know, Christian religions or Jewish religions, the way that the, um, those books are structured. Yeah, first of all, that's not true. The Quran only has about 120 verses. About 120 verses of the Quran have to do with legal matters out of tens of thousands. Uh, and if you've actually read the first five chapters of the Bible, you would know that it is mostly law. <laughs> that, that all religions are also about the way that you behave in the world, not just the things that you believe. But while that would make perfect sense to you know most people there's still there's just this blinders these blinders that come on when it comes to islam so when you're faced with a question like that or a statement like that how do you stay so calm i really like need to know because i don't think when i see them say like so many layers and layers of presumptions about you and about islam baked into the question how do you stay calm and just, you know, break it apart? I mean, I would be worried about the angry Muslim stereotype as well. Yeah, look, that's what it is. When you're a brown man on TV, you have to stay calm. Mm. That's just all there is to it. Those are the rules, you know? You just— It feels I like mean, you shouldn't have to, but you if you don't, it's like <laughs> nobody's going to hear you, you know? That's kind of seems like the struggle. Well, even, even still, like, you know, I've conducted interviews in which I thought that I was perfectly calm. And then afterwards, I've had commentators say, well, look at that angry Muslim. No wonder <laughs> people are afraid of, of Islam. And I'm like, what? All right. I, like, I, I totally kept my cool. Um, <laughs> my wife always jokes. She always says, like, my tell is my eyebrows. You can always tell. <laughs> by my eyebrows, how pissed off I actually am. Um, I mean, you basically have already alluded to the fact that you kind of feel done with this punditry stuff. Was there a moment that made you just be like, screw this, I'm out? Or was it like a general evolution? I will tell you this, that there was a moment in which I had just simply had it with cable news. I remember it very, very clearly. It was maybe three years ago or something like that. And I was walking to my office and I saw this cable news network and the Chiron said, does President Obama love America? And I just thought, you know what? Just fuck this. I've (laughs) I've just had it. I I have just had it. 
And, you know, a lot of people say, wow, I haven't, you know, I haven't seen you on, on the news lately. And I was like, yeah, because I just don't do it anymore. I just, yeah. I've had it. But also I do feel as though there are more effective ways to get a message across to change people's minds. You've been investing a lot in different projects. I know I've seen you've had your hands in a lot of, a lot of different stuff. That's it. Can you tell us about some of your projects? We already talked about Secret Life yeah. of Muslims. So the Secret Life of Muslims, I think, is a very important project. It's, a, as you had mentioned before, a, a series of mini-docs is the best way to put it um, on Vox Media. It's basically just a little glimpse into the lives, the thoughts, the ideas, the struggles of American Muslims at various stages in their lives and their careers. Some of them are famous. Some of them, you know, aren't. Um, but it's a way to just sort of get to know Muslims in this country as human beings instead of as, you know, symbols of a different religion or a different ethnicity or a different culture. I talk about this a lot, actually, on the show where, like, I told a story in an earlier episode where I talked about being asked to speak for Islam in front of, like, <laughs> churches and schools when I was uh, younger and how I also kind of came to that similar conclusion to you about how trying to directly speak to the misconceptions or trying to change people's mind by just talking about the issues themselves seems to not be so effective. So you've gone on a lot of these shows where you are like brought on as the Muslim expert. Um, do you think that these appearances do anything to educate people? It's not about educating people. I mean, I think we have to remember that bigotry is not a result of ignorance. It's a result of fear. Mm. And fear is impervious to data, right? No amount of information is going to stop someone from being afraid. What does change people's perceptions, what does take away fear is relationships. Mm. And while it's difficult because, you know, there are so few Muslims in the United States, you know, less than 2% of the country is, is Muslim, the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of Americans don't know any Muslims, have never met any Muslims. The only Muslims that they know about are the ones that they see on the news, and so that's not good. But if they do get an opportunity to see Muslims in a different light, whether it is through something like Secret Lives, which, you know, you just get to hear a Muslim talking about themselves, or whether it's through television shows or films, um, other pop culture media, I think that that has the potential to transform the way that people think about Muslims in a way that nothing else does. I mean, no no amount of news commentary, no amount of books that I write are going to actually change people's minds the way that a single television show could. So yeah, over the last four or five years, I've really pivoted in my career and I have now spent the bulk of my time with my production company, BoomGen Studios, developing, investing in, producing, creating content for film and television. I hear you've got a ABC sitcom that was picked up. Can you yes, tell us about that? I've got uh, a sitcom on, on ABC. It's about an Iranian-American Muslim family living in the U.S., you know, in the post-Trump years. Oh, okay, uh, it's wow. Very much based, it's very much based on my own family experience. We've got that at ABC. I've got 
two other TV projects at, at a couple of other different networks, and I'm hoping to be able to announce that before the end of the year, uh, some film projects. I really do believe that this is the way that people like me, who do see it as their responsibility to present an alternative perspective on people of the Middle East, Muslims, Middle Easterners in general, this is the greatest tool that we have at our disposal is pop culture. Americans have always had their views on the world shaped not by their politicians, not by the news media, but by pop culture. It's usually politicians and news media that have to catch up Hmm. to uh, what pop culture has already embedded in people's minds. I feel like we're definitely seeing more and more sort of people of color focused sitcoms and the like. I mean, there's like Blackish and Fresh mm-hmm. Off the Boat. Um, but I'm actually curious. Both like, ABC shows, by the way. And so ABC let's, shows, let's, let's hear it for ABC. <laughs> you know, that was so was it difficult pitching it to them? No. What was it? What no. was that experience like? It took 10 minutes. <laughs> it took 10 minutes. They bought it in the room. <laughs> it was our first pitch. They, they were like, this is what we do at ABC. We will take it. So, you know, Good on ABC. Honestly, they have decided that this is going to be their brand. That's so cool. Um, And that's great. And I think that that kind of courage, that kind of ability to sort of say that we are going to reflect what this country looks like is what we need out of networks and executives. And listen, you know, Boom Gen Studios was formed almost 11 years ago. And, you know, this isn't something that just happened. I bet the landscape probably looked We've a been, lot different 11 yeah, years ago. exactly. We have been pitching stories, pitching films, pitching projects for 11 years. It's just that over the last three years, people have started to actually buy them now. And so I think that is an indication of not just where we are as a country, but also the fact that I think more and more studios, more executives, more networks are willing to say, you know, we want to tell a different kind of story. And so we are in a place where we can actually have, I think, some real good influence on the way that our culture, our very identity is presented to the public insofar as pop culture goes. If you can, is there any story from your childhood that you're thinking about adapting to the show that you could share with us? <laughs> um, well, as I said, when I first came to the United States, it was in the middle of the Iran hostage crisis. And so, you know, there was a lot of anti-Iranian, a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment. And so I spent a good part of the 1980s pretending to be Mexican. I told people that, you know, I was, I, I learned a little bit of Spanish. I, I, you know, I learned how to break dance. That was, I could tell you how long you ago that was. learned how to break dance. Like, Sorry, yeah, that took uh, me yeah. a sec. Oh, totally, dude. That was like. You have to show us that. Enjoyed, there needs to be some have, videos yeah. of the cardboard pop, box, I'm, the Adidas track Oh, yeah. Suit. Oh, yeah, dude. Totally. I had the cardboard box. I had the shoes. I was, you know, I wasn't bad. Um, I'm pop locking right now as we speak. Um, and so, yeah, the main character in this show does pretend to be something else besides, you know, Iranian and Muslim and hilarity ensues. But that was a, a big part of my struggle growing up was to just pretend that I was something else. Mm. And I think a lot of people, regardless of, you know, what your culture or what your ethnicity is, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah, I mean, definitely hiding your identity is something that I think is really a like universal experience for many young Muslim kids. Um, and I think it's something that could be portrayed more and more 
on TV. So as somebody who's doing this now and thinking about it, who do you look at that's doing a good job telling their truth on TV or writing or just in the creative arts? Who is sharing their story well? I think Iqbal Theba, uh, who's also in Secret Lives of Muslims and, you know, who's longtime star of Glee, is doing a marvelous job of integrating his Muslim identity into the pop culture. I think that Hassan Minaj is killing it on mm. The Daily Show and is probably poised to become a major star. And, and he's somebody who is very real and honest about his Muslim identity, Asif Manvi. His new Showtime show, Fatwa, is going to be fantastic because, again, it's dealing with these ideas, these stereotypes about Islam and sort of figuring out ways to uh, turn them on their heads. G. Willow Wilson, uh, Ah, who uh, is, you know, obviously a great author, but what she's doing with Ms. Marvel is... I mean, it's just, it's unprecedented. We did a huge segment about Ms. Marvel in our third episode, actually, um, and talked to fans. Yeah, it's really having an effect out there. I know. It's amazing. Riz Ahmed, you know, I mean, dude, we got a Muslim in Star Wars. I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah, that's something definitely, as a huge Star Wars buff growing up, I never thought. I know. I thought we were just going to be Tusken Raiders for the rest of our life. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Actually, little known fact, Chewbacca is a Muslim. Is that right? Why is Chewbacca a Muslim? Wookiees are Muslim. (laughs) Wookiees are Muslim. All right. As you've noted, there's a lot of interest in Muslims sort of being asked to speak for Islam, to speak on behalf of Muslims. And, you know, a lot of non-Muslims, you know, maybe liberal non-Muslims who are interested, want to know how to help. So my question is, like, how do we navigate that space? What is your advice for those people who are trying to sort of advance the conversation? Well, what I would say, I think, to Muslims, young Muslims, is that you don't have to be a representative of your entire faith, but simply being yourself, your true and honest self, is the best representation that you could possibly give someone. If what changes people's minds is not information but relationships, you should stop trying to teach people the Quran Hmm. or teach people Islam and instead just show them who you are. Show them your values. Show them the kind of person that you are and the fact that who you are is very much tied in with your faith. That changes everything. So be yourself. Be yourself. Be proud of your ethnicity. Be proud of your identity. Be proud of your culture and religion But don't feel burdened by having to either represent, you know, 1.7 billion people in the world or to even have to respond or apologize, you know, for um, acts that are done, you know, by Muslims in, in the name of Islam. None of that is going to help anybody. Just express your values through your actions, your friendships, your relationships in your neighborhood, in your school, in your community. And you would be amazed at the power that that has in changing the way that people think, not just about you, 
but about your culture and your religion. And to, I think, non-Muslims who want to live in, you know, a country that actually promotes, you know, the values that we constantly talk about but rarely live up to, you have to just make a very simple decision, which is that you have to decide what kind of country you want to live in. You have to decide whether you are going to celebrate the fact that we have this enormous diversity, that we are soon to become the first country in the world that will be majority minorities, Mm. or you have to decide whether you want to fight against it. But if you do want to celebrate it, you celebrate it by finding common cause with people who are a different color or a different faith or a different ethnicity. The magic of this country is is precisely the fact that we draw our unity from our diversity. And I think that while that is scary to a lot of people, and I get that, it's also something that's miraculous and that needs to be celebrated and it needs to be nurtured. But it needs to be nurtured, again, in our neighborhoods and in our communities, um, in our churches, in our schools. We, I think, sometimes underestimate how much influence a single individual expressing their values in the world can actually have in affecting the world. That seems like a nice and optimistic note to end our show on. <laughs> this is all assuming that Trump doesn't blow it all up. I mean, <laughs> yes, there's, there's a pretty good chance here that we may not years. be around much longer. But, you know. Uh, thank you so much for being on, Reza. It was, it was a pleasure to have you. I'm looking forward to your video. We'll, we'll, uh, it's not out yet, but it's going to be soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This episode was produced by Eleanor Kagan and Megan Dietrich. Additional production support from Thabir Akhtar, Julia Ferlin, Meg Kramer, Nina Patak, and Chiquita Pasco. Thanks to CDM Sound Studios. Our music is by the Gaminas. You can find them at gaminas.bandcamp.com. You can find me on Twitter at RadBrownDads, and I have a Tumblr also called RadBrownDads. Find my writing at buzzfeed.com slash Email us at saysomething at buzzfeed.com. And if you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. I'm Amadella Yuckber. Thanks for listening.